0: Welcome to Energy Renewed, a podcast by ICF, a meeting of the minds in renewable energy where people come together to discuss ideas and synergies to propel the industry forward. I'm Katie Jenick from ICF and the host of Energy Renewed. ICF provides technical advisory services to lenders, investors, and project owners for renewable energy technologies and processes. In this podcast series, we will consider varying viewpoints, ranging from policy topics to equipment components. Welcome. In this episode, we are discussing CAPE Software with Paul McGuire, one of the founders of CAPE Software, and with Baldwin Young, partner and founder of CMY Solutions. More than 50% of utilities use CAPE software to do simulations, short circuit programs, and protection. We are excited to have Paul here as he is a pioneer in the power industry as it relates to software and grid reliability. And we are equally excited to hear Baldwin's thoughts and discuss the relevance of reliability as we bring more renewables onto the grid and experience rolling grid outages in some parts of the country. Um, Baldwin, will you take a moment and introduce yourself?
1: Sure, thank thank you, Katie. I'm I'm Baldwin Young of CMY Solutions, and uh, just quickly, I've just been in the industry uh, working on protection software, facility software, neurocompliance, and one of the interesting pieces that our world has evolved into is the data management of all of this, um, this genre of software and the importance that it's going to be to us in the future here. So, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. And Paul, will you take a moment and introduce yourself?
2: Uh, Thank you, Katie. I would be happy to. Uh, Yes, my name is Paul McGuire. I have been with a a small company uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, now known or formerly known as Electricon International, who developed uh, software to analyze the power system grid, specifically on the areas of power system protection, Uh, and we can explain more about that, uh, later. Uh, I am now retired, very recently retired and, uh, had sold the company to Siemens, uh, in the United States, uh, two years ago, uh, in order to allow the company and its, uh, valuable contributions to our profession to carry on, uh, and uh, that has now been done. Uh, so uh, with that, I guess I will uh, say uh, thank you for having me today. And I hope that I can provide information that's useful to you.
0: Oh, I'm sure you will. <laughs> so perhaps let's start on the background of the software. I'm curious as to what what was the genesis of the software? How, how did it come to be?
2: The... It's a very interesting story. Uh, The uh, company that uh, I was part of uh, had been working since 1973 or four on developing computer programs for power system analysis, not in the area of protection where we ended up, but in the areas of uh, transmission uh, simulation primarily. We developed a short circuit program on our own Uh, knowing that there would be some need uh, for that function that no one else had really done well. We did that uh, over the time, 1982, 3, and 4. It still hadn't gotten into the topic of system protection. We had sold that software on personal computers, by the way, which was a big deal and something very new uh, in 1984. But we had software that was running on uh, single and double diskette uh, drive p- personal computers, no hard drives. Uh, that was seen by Georgia Power Company, a member of the Southern Company. And they uh, realized the need for uh, software that would support the system protection function. And the short circuit is a key component of software uh that would do that sort of support. But that had never been developed at that point. And they came to us because they saw how well the short circuit program worked and asked would we be willing to develop with RD function uh, monies the product that they had come up with a name for Computer Aided Protection Engineering, or CAPE for short. And nine of its functions, actually eight of its functions, and we added one immediately, and that was a database management system uh, would be needed to manage all the data that's involved. So it is a textbook uh, story that the customer came to us and we realized uh, the value of and the potential for what they were asking us to develop and realized that we would need more money than one company was going to provide. We convinced them to allow us to go out and find nine other companies that would support uh, financially this development, but not just financially, also uh, with the uh, technical um, guidance, suggestions, participation. In other words, I know it's going to sound funny, but here's a uh, very important program consisting of many, many components today that was developed by committee. And I hope you uh, see the humor uh, in that statement. But in fact, it worked. Uh, Engineers uh, want to to do a good job. They want to do a job and do it well. And they were only too willing to participate with us every three months in uh, two day meetings where we would discuss the product that was to be developed, how it should be done, what it should look like. And that went on uh, for four or five years until we had gotten a good start on the development, a development that uh, one of us thought would take only 18 months before we started the work. Uh, others of us thought it would take a little bit longer, but in truth, it took about uh, 20 years to get to the point of completing the work that was originally envisioned and adding on to that.
0: And let's talk about, just before we move on, let's talk about the team that you had. So when you're talking about, you're using terms like us and we, so you, are, you had a team of people you were working with that already had the short circuit program Um in place, and then that was what Southern Power Company wanted to expand upon. Can you talk a little bit about the team that you were working with at the time? Uh,
2: I'd be happy to. The uh, the miracle of it all was that we only went out and searched for one additional person beyond the people we already had. Uh, Two of us had been classmates at the University of Michigan in the graduate program in power system engineering there. Uh, Another was in the from England, uh, actually Scotland, and he his specialty was applied mathematics, not power systems analysis, uh, but became a critical component of the team. And there were uh, only uh, others that we gathered along the way. Um, I would say we ended up developing the program with an average of about six people, five to six people over a period from 1985 when the development actually began or the discussion began and then develop a year or two later development a year or two later, uh, through really through the present time. Uh, but through the core of the development, uh, that group of people, uh, I would say that the, uh, consisted of generally uh, post uh, PhD uh, recent PhD uh, students. uh, Who come from all over, we have people uh, on the team now. From Mexico, yes, uh, who uh, was one person I'm thinking of was educated in northern Canada, if you can imagine that contrast uh three people from various parts of china uh two from india uh and then uh some people who were actually born in the united states such as myself Uh, so it was really a a coalition uh, of participants uh, that we picked up bit by bit uh, as we had room on the staff for them but who uh, surprisingly, had talents that were just the right ones that we needed uh, for the work. Some we didn't realize had it uh, until we got into the project a ways. But it was uh, amazing that just the right people came together to uh, to accomplish this. Uh, Katie, did you, did you have any other aspect of the team uh, that you Paul, were interested Paul, in?
1: Paul, I had, I, I had a question, actually, two questions, really. The first being, would you say, was it mostly a democracy while you were pu- putting this together? Would you, or is it more? Um, there was a common goal where everyone had input, but at the end of the day, somebody had to be the what 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 was going to make the final cut of the software.
2: Well, we certainly had a manager of the project. That was me. Right. Um, and so, but I would still say that there was a strong element of democracy in there, in that if you're a good leader and manager, you're listening to ideas from everyone and making them understand that their values matter, that their their suggestions matter, and utilize them in the right combination. So that, I think, was the proper role that I played in doing, in doing that. And not only... Uh, not only me. Uh, first of all, when the project started, the professor who was the president of the company at that time, Dr. Mark Enns, uh, was in that position, but I was the engineering manager in making those uh, decisions, but never uh, single handedly, always in discussion. So it was very much a, a, a group sort of, uh, of thing. Furthermore, I mentioned that, that we had 10 utilities who sent one or two uh, attendees to every uh, advisory committee meeting that we held, which was again, every three months for uh, two days usually to discuss the design and develop the ideas. Then we would go away and work on those, do some of the programming, come back and dem- you know three months later and demonstrate what we had done so far. That led to more communication, uh, and more progress in the thinking of how this product would, uh, would look. But I would say that when we began, we had a functional specification. In other words, what major components do we want this product to have, which didn't change. Uh, we expanded on it a little bit as time went on, but it didn't change. Uh, how we were to do it, that's something we had to, to do as we went along. Though we again had ideas based on work we had already done in the previous 15 years uh, in other areas of power system analysis, we could apply some of those ideas again. But uh, no, it was an evolution and it was a uh, fortuitous one for all of us that we had the right people with the right attitudes uh, to make contributions to make it work.
1: There are all, all these people that he's mentioned. If you go into detail, not all of them are power people. So it was like the perfect storm of mathematician, engineer, you know, uh, database guy. I, I think really, Paul, I think that's understated of the success of Kate.
2: I probably do. We've always been there. <laughs> We've never tried to boast or anything, uh only to show people by our actions and the product that we developed that uh, we were the ones
0: to go with. Well, to me it's it's foresight that you put together a diverse team. You put together a program that could fit on personal computers in the early to mid eighties when personal you know, not everyone had a personal computer. Um to me that that is foresight. And I feel like this this episode could easily easily be discussed about leadership, right? Leadership skills. Um but from from our prior conversations, it sounds like you you weren't the first to develop this type of short circuit program for computers. Is that correct? You, it was just the it most flexible. Correct.
2: Excuse me, it is correct. There were people. Philadelphia Electric Company had a uh, a Pico for short uh, had developed a short circuit program using a technique that was being used was one that uh, did not it prohibited. Uh, study of large networks. Uh, there are terms for all of this that I, I won't introduce, really. But you basically, in getting the calculation, would end up with a set of numbers that was so large to process that the calculation would be slow if you got to be more than about three. what we call 300 buses. Those are buses are points in a network that are interconnected by transmission lines and transformers. Well, you couldn't get larger than 300 without running into time problems. Well, the real networks are many thousands of buses, even then. Uh, Today, uh, a 50,000 bus case is not unheard of by any means. Uh, This technique that we developed and simultaneously with a uh, group in California uh, developed without knowledge of each other uh, working on it we developed a program anyway that would solve basically any size system almost instantaneously.
0: So in comparison just to put this in perspective, you you mentioned that the um the existing software at the time would only let's say it used 300 buses or it's it, 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 about right it,
2: 300 or a little more I would you know, more time you wanted to wait for an answer than the bigger system you could look at.
0: And now what is what is the use case?
2: there really isn't a uh, limit anymore but I would say our average customer has a system of about five to six thousand buses uh, but many of them get up to twenty thousand uh, buses and some are up in the uh, level of even fifty thousand uh, buses and our vision is that uh, we should be and will need to be in the future looking at the a model of the entire, North America. Uh, that, that is
0: extraordinary. To, that to could go be hundred thousand
2: buses easily.
0: To go from such a small, um, I'm calling them use cases, but to go from such a small use case using three hundred buses to, you know, twenty, twenty, twenty-five
1: thousand. Yes, I, I think that's a that's a real like testament to how mathematical the model is at, at its core, right, Paul? Because yes, the math is what's is basically what's driving is the limitation. Um, Mark if Andrews, I'm,
2: if I'm like, he's you know the professor who founded us right. at Michigan, and uh, uh, another professor now, well, formerly he's retired too at the University of Wisconsin, uh, who was Mark's best uh, PhD student. Those two working together had the ideas uh, and the vision. That we needed to have a program that could handle much larger systems. Now it turns out, when the Southern Company folks came to us, they were suggesting at least 2,500 buses. But uh, Mark and Fernando Alvarado knew very well uh, that we needed much to be able to handle a much larger system, and they designed a technique. They were numerical methods uh, developers, and. They designed a technique that would basically give us instantaneous answers anywhere in the system model we wanted, no matter how large the system is. And that was uh, an absolutely necessary component, though we didn't know it at the time, of the development of CAG.
0: And the start of your database?
2: The database was always and remains today the core, the foundation of the whole thing.
1: I mean, I think. Tell me, Paul, if this is a good analogy of it, is that the the mathematics of it is kind of like a race car, but in this day and age, with there's so much data coming from so much, so many different places, trying to drive this car with with all the inputs is kind of like driving on a gravel road. If you're not careful, it, yeah. it can do whatever you want it to do, but it's whatever you you plan to feed into it, and I think that's the dangers that we see out there. At least as a consultant, that's my danger.
2: Well, certainly the data is the essential part of it. And in fact, it must be accurate and must represent what's really out there. uh, In order to get, well, you've heard the expression garbage in, garbage out. Uh, You want to avoid getting garbage out, so we've got to have a good model. That's why I call the database the foundation of this whole uh, situation, this whole area of study.
0: And because of the size of the database, the number of simulations that you can perform can have up to what, what number of different types of conditions or it's, what number of different types of scenarios.
2: Yeah. So if you had a, you know, you might get very good answers from one single simulation. That's fine. Uh, and that's done. That's an interactive type of study that's done all the time by the protection engineers who use the product but there is a uh, level well above that where you would like to do a massive review of the entire network, what we call a wide area coordination review. And that gets to the subject of protective devices and what they do uh, need to have the devices that are closest to a fault that might occur on the network be the ones that operate and separate out the smallest portion of the network possible to eliminate the fault. And you sometimes that separation is temporary. Sometimes it's going to be a longer term. Uh, but if you're trying to to find all those situations that could happen in your network and want to evaluate, will the protection that we have designed into this system be adequate in all cases that we can think of? Now you might be talking uh, as somewhere in the range of 500 to 1,000 studies per transmission line. And you may have, uh, at, even just at the high voltage levels, uh, you might have 500 to 1,000 lines to deal with. You could imagine getting 1,000 times 1,000 cases to study in order to accomplish that wide area review of your whole protection system. That's not something that's done in the blink of an eye. Uh, It could take uh, weeks and months uh, to do, and it does. And we know that that's too slow, and we need to do it much much more of the studies, uh, many more of them, and and, uh, do them much faster. And we are in the process of rewriting the program to make it faster. And and also utilizing multiple computers simultaneously to accomplish the job. Um, So that's where the million number could easily come from.
0: And just for our listeners, can you put it into context in in the sense of um, having a million different conditions or scenarios, what what it does to contribute to the reliability of the grid?
2: Well, I can tell you what our contribution is. To to increase the reliability of the grid, one has to have a protection system that will do what I was just saying before, and that is uh, detect the presence of the fault and take an action that has the minimal effect on the customers who are using that grid. That is, that get their uh, power, their energy from the grid. Uh, All right, we we don't want to lose that any more often than we have to and so we need the uh, protective devices to be first of all many of them throughout the system uh, generally many of them at each end of each transmission line by the way uh, to we need those devices to operate ahead of uh Devices that you would consider backup, meaning uh, you have a a lightning strike on a transmission line, a given line. Uh, You want the protection at both ends of the line to operate very quickly. And not only just very quickly, but well ahead of. Backup protection on other lines that would, if they were to open their circuit breakers, would cause more of the network to be lost and more customers potentially to be lost. Uh, so you have to worry about that. Uh, now, the a, uh, a newcomer to this topic would want is you understand that a, a network is like a something like a screen on your screen door, of uh, a storm door. Uh, in other words, you've got uh, transmission lines that come together at points to satisfy load or to uh, receive generation, to receive power from generators that may exist there. Um, and what's very important, again, is to, to detect the presence of a fault, which usually is uh, voltages and currents that are out of and way beyond the norm. It was very low voltages, uh, very high currents, and use that as a method to detect that, hey, there's a problem. And furthermore, one has to have protection that can find the probable location of that fault so that uh, they will operate in a coordinated way. Remove the fault uh, with least impact on the network itself. Keep the rest of the network running while you're taking out the, the uh, faulted condition.
1: I I was going to say, I I think you're almost underselling CAPE a little bit, Paul, because within the utility, um, there's always competing departments, for example, like operations and planning, which is, you know, just as important as us protecting the lines, making sure everyone gets, um, you know, it operates correctly and you're getting the best rates possible. And CAPE itself is usually the foundational piece. To operations and planning. Yeah. Really, the tool that most utilities, it's best in secret, where they get all the design, they put it into CAPE, they, they get these values out of CAPE, clearing or impedances, and then it propagates through a utility as quickly as possible. So when, when, when Paul is discussing here, hey, these faults are happening, or this, we're, we're trying to line that up with what's happening in real life. And every day it gets more and more difficult, um because in the past it was a pretty simple system it was you got your power plants you got your customers and we're just trying to equal it out now with renewables and um 1000 all these new new competing projects and isos this is why this this has become so much more important that we we ensure these models are correct it's the it's the basis of basically how we protect our grid
0: well let's talk about the impact of renewables so how how does the rise of renewables complicate the simulations or complicate the situation
2: one of the uh, complications is of course that it's all spread out over the network where before uh, you relied upon uh, a relatively small number of generating stations uh, that uh, were and because it's small in number, there aren't, you know, not so many of them uh, in the network. Uh, and so it was easier to protect uh, them uh, than it would be today when you have uh, solar, and wind, and, and other uh, renewable sources. But those are the two big ones that might be uh, spread out everywhere. And... There's another aspect, of course, to the renewables, and that is that they're not always available. Wind doesn't always blow. Uh, the Sun doesn't always shine. And, and <laughs> certainly with quite regularity, the sun doesn't shine. Uh, and, and so you cannot depend on them 24 hours a day, even though uh, power is needed 24 hours a day. Yes, uh, a greater amount is needed during the workday when people are out doing things and using that energy, uh, but that's an an issue. And there's another one that uh, we need to discuss, and that is that the renewables, uh, while they're intermittent, uh, they need to have the, uh, there needs to be some form of storage. If they're going to be used in the large uh, quantities, That is large fractions uh, that our governmental authorities and people would like to have them be used. You have to have some way of storing that power because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And that is a problem that has not been solved. There are various ways of trying to do it. Uh, That is to store the energy while you have excess somehow and then utilize that excess. Energy when you need it, uh, which might be uh, when the uh, you know when there's a dead calm and and uh, it's, everything is cloudy, let's say. And there are hopes for the future, but I don't know exactly where the solution resides entirely things that probably, uh, there is probably no one solution to the problem. It's not going to be batteries. Uh, Those are using rare earth materials that I just don't see us having in in the quantities uh, that uh, make batteries the solution. But there is something being worked on now, uh, let's call it the hydrogen economy, where one could use what's called electrolysis. to that is a direct injection of electricity into uh, water uh, to cause the hydrogen and oxygen h2o we all know that's water uh, to be separated into individual atoms or molecules uh, oxygen on one side hydrogen on the other o2 and h2 uh, and then save those store those in some fashion at least the hydrogen part and recombine uh, them by effectively burning them to get the energy back uh, when you need it. The waste products of hydrogen and oxygen are nothing but water. And so it's very attractive, but it hasn't been perfected uh, yet, even though electrolysis has been around for a very, very long time. And the idea, uh, we all did it in high school uh, chemistry lab classes. Uh, but doing it in a commercially effective way has not uh, not been accomplished yet, but has, is being worked on for sure. Okay, it, there is, are other it po- is
0: fascinating. I mean, hydrogen storage is fascinating. Goldman Sachs has a report out on hydrogen storage, and it it, it is quite interesting and it describes what you what you just outlined. Um, yeah. So just just to recap before we get to more solutions. So it sounds like with the rise of renewables, um, you have a resource issue in terms of having um having consistent resource that that contributes to the reliability of the grid um and then you also have the 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 storage piece um and and whether or not it's going to be efficient enough or productive enough to contribute to the reliability of the grid and so We, we also
1: had a we also had a modeling issue i would say five years ago too that I think Paul and them have ironed out, but that was a big issue with renewables, was everybody was, when it was a wind generator or solar generator, we didn't know how to put that into the model accurately. And everybody had their version of what it should look like. And Katie, that became a, as a consultant, that was a huge issue between developers and utilities to accurately, just because renewables are DC and we have to convert them through power electronics. And the problem is probably, Power electronic engineers and power engineers—it's like Greek to each other. And right, Paul, that was a that was a huge headache that we were all. Yeah, I about. wish I
2: could call it all in the past. I'd say it, it continues to be today. We, we haven't uh, settled out on what the best models are uh, to use for wind turbine generators, for example. And right. part of the issue is is the competitive nature of that business. And manufacturers and vendors not wanting to share in details about their uh, control systems with people like us who need to model them. So there's an issue uh, right there. Uh, the, uh, we're working on it. And I would say uh, one of the in, the, in North America at least, one of the prime contributors to uh, and pushers of the development of better models of these devices is the Electric Power Research Institute in california you know principally in california we've got offices in many places but uh they've done a great job they've been helping us uh encouraging us to implement models that they have developed to see how they work which we have been doing and that's the kind of thing well that inertia is the point that i'm trying to bring out here is what systems need or depend on to stay stable when you have uh wind power in large numbers they don't have uh, any appreciable inertia. They cannot withstand that sort of uh, uh, jostle or uh, or hit. Solar has none. And so uh, getting around that problem, uh, in other words, you're losing inertia as you retire these coal plants or other large nu- certainly nuclear plants with the large generators that they have, have a lot of inertia, a lot of weight uh, behind them. And they can withstand uh, perturbations, but the other devices can't, and so uh, you have to work that into the mix, and and that's what California is wrestling with right now, and not only them.
1: And Katie, that that's that's the reason why I wanted to highlight that was that that somehow becomes our ceiling when we're developing projects, because we're having a struggle in the industry. How much renewable is too much, and it. And it goes back to our original conversation. It's how good the data is, and if we can't accurately predict what these turbines look like in real time or how much wind is truly out there, the government—I mean, the government the government's first move is to make sure everyone gets electricity stable, and that becomes a limiting factor for all of us from from a compliance standpoint. And I just wanted to really highlight that there.
0: And we're already seeing that, right? I mean, this. Part of part of um, what you both are describing, I mean, California is seeing this with the wildfires. It's also seeing this with um, rolling brownouts or outages.
2: Yes, either caused directly by the fire or uh, as a uh, well, a method of trying to minimize the outbreak uh, of fires. Because certainly, uh, you probably have all seen or heard of. you know a transformer uh, self-destructing somehow and causing a lot of sparks or fault whatever might cause the fault uh, might be a tree uh, might be a lightning but whatever does uh, there'll be sparks associated with that and therefore a fire that can start and that's been an issue so there's been uh, preemptive outages uh, forced upon the populace uh, by the electric utility to uh, save them from worse uh, situations than simply not having power uh, so you're facing that uh, and I'm sure not just in California just there in the news all the time
1: about it. I As someone that survived the wildfire last week out here um, <laughs> which got closer to home than I really wanted I ever wanted to imagine the one thing that I, I started to recognize about it was the amount of time to discover the location of where we cause this fire. I mean, there's so many enterprises, and and fault location is going to be something that needs to be prioritized in our industry. The faster we can locate where this wire whacked into a tree, you know, just in general, it is is so important because there, we have only a limited amount of resource in a gigantic territory out here. Um, so we can't be everywhere, and it is, is that? How do you model that correctly? What what new technologies come in that we can chase that down? I think it's going to definitely help.
2: Certainly there's a lot of people working on it. We too, uh, we've got techniques, uh, not all of which have been commercialized yet uh, for fault location, but if you have a good model and you have good measurements being taken by what they call digital fault recorders uh, or you know, similar equipment, digital monitoring equipment, Uh, And we know what those values are uh, at various locations. uh, We can tell you where the fault is. Uh, The equipment itself, the relays that are being made are small computers these days, have been for the last uh, 40 years, 30 years anyway. um, Have the ability to uh, find uh, or uh, show a fault location as part of their output when a fault does occur. So, in other words, a lot is being done in that area, but we're not there yet, and maybe we'll never be perfect. Uh, but there is a lot of work going on uh, on the uh, fault location topic.
0: Well, I've i found this conversation fascinating, and just to learn more to learn more about cave software and just the wide ranging ramifications. So interesting. Um, do you have do you, each of you have any closing closing thoughts?
2: Wow. Uh, there are a lot of things that I think about, but I would say that uh, mankind has always had the talent, uh, when a problem is identified, had the talent uh, come to the surface somehow uh, to solve a problem. Now, do we solve it fast enough? Uh, no engineers ever satisfied uh, with that response because no, the answer would be no. You don't solve it fast enough, but uh, we do get there somehow. And so I think while there are definitely challenges constantly awaiting us, that uh, we also have the talent of our people. Uh, and and that's people from all over. You heard me say we had people from India, from China, from Mexico, and from the U.S. and from Europe, uh, on our team, because we only hired the what we felt were the best people uh, for the job. They're out there, and they will, uh, you know, they'll they'll continue to be out there in, in various uh, ways to solve problems. And I, uh, so I guess I'd like to remain optimistic. Uh, we must be optimistic. Uh, that's my contribution from the
1: engineering point of view.
0: Thank you. I like that. That's very well-rounded. Baldwin? I,
1: the one thing that I, 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 working with Paul, and been I've been doing this for quite a while, and, and this is my passion, are, are these system models and getting them right, is that no matter what you call this, data analytics, data, data analysis, asset management, it, it comes down to the same couple things as in we need people to communicate different departments as the workforce labor is getting smaller to Paul's point we need people from all angles to help us solve this problem but specifically if you have somebody in compliance we need to leverage compliance for example PRC 27 a wider area study coordination to make sure the grid is accurate we need to be able to leverage that those kind of initiatives to solve other problems because we'll discover hey working on this problem this other department may have a better solution or they needed help. And as we're pulling it together, that the elegant solution usually presents itself. Um, and, and my message for younger engineers is you, you really got to get out there and see what it's, you know, it's so easy to be pigeonholed these days or almost be too broad. And don't be scared of someone telling you, this is how we've always done it. I, I almost find that as a challenge. Um, there are so many new techniques in other industries and with technology and um, don't be afraid of CAPE. CAPE has so many great applications that people don't even recognize that you could use to help you solve new problems.
2: Baldwin, I wish I had thought of your comment too though, uh, communication, that uh, amongst the different parties uh, within the utility, between utilities and, uh, and beyond. Uh, how important communication is. And sometimes we seem not to do it.
1: I mean, even within our own industry, when I speak to people at ICF on the, uh, for example, Heidi Larson, when she does these independent engineering evaluations, I I get these moments. I'm like, oh, that's why this is on that. Like, this is why you're asking me this question. Or, Or when we're collaborating, it's kind of, she's starting to understand my, my pinch points and while we're working through them they turn out most of the time to be things all achievable but it's the lack of you know communication or even education i would say even um, especially on my end with renewables there's just so much in the in the market changes so quickly as opposed to when you're working for an electric utility change tends to be a little bit slower so we're starting to see these two things trying to slam into each other but I can tell in the last couple of years, it's gotten a lot better engineered, especially when we get this younger labor force who has who's willing to go try new things. And um, I mean, quite honestly, the Internet and technology has just made the world a smaller place.
0: To both of you. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm I'm happy we were able to do this.
1: Thank you for having us. Very welcome.